At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy, and we are here uh, with a lot to talk about, even though it's late late July, I almost said late August, late July, not quite that far along in summer, and college baseball obviously has slowed a bit after you know, the, the rush of the draft and, and all the rest of that, but still a fair amount going on in the world of college baseball and college sports. So we're going to get into, into all of that here today, starting with our uh, never too early top 25, which we released about a few days ago. It was last week sometime. What are days anymore? Uh, anyway, so we released our, our first look at the 2022 season. Uh, excited to uh, to get into to that and start looking ahead. Uh, Joe and I also both saw some summer ball action. I was out on the Cape, which is part of the reason why we didn't have a podcast a week ago. And Joe saw the collegiate national team playing against the Olympic team in uh, at the end of the collegiate national team's season and at the start of the or the, the final warmups for the Olympic team before they went over uh, to Tokyo. And then of course the big news in the college sports world overall over the last week has been the news that Texas and Oklahoma are going to move from the big 12 to the SEC. So we'll dive into that a little bit as well. So a lot to talk about today on the Baseball America podcast, which is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. And this is a good time uh, for you to, to look at some of the Rapsodo stuff. 85% of the BA's top 500 draft prospects Use Rapsodo data to train, and Rapsodo is used by all 30 MLB clubs. And we have, for our listeners right now, a sale going on. Rapsodo is offering our listeners $500 off their hitting 2.0 and pitching 2.0 units from now until August 1st. So you got to act fast here over the, the rest of this week. Head over to rapsodo.com slash summersteel and use the code BASteel. That's all one word, BASteel to save $500 off on all unit purchases from now until August 1st. Rapsodo, measure to master. All right, Joe, we're, uh, we're here, like I said, with a fair amount to talk about. There's, uh, there's a lot going on in the college sports world as, as football cranks up, but we're, the, the Olympics are going on, the basketball tournament is happening. 
but we're already on to 2022 here at the Baseball America, uh, at Baseball America for, for college baseball. Yeah, the, the rest of this year doesn't matter, frankly. We're just <clears throat> moving right on. Uh, so which, which um, you mentioned the basketball tournament. That's something I watched a little bit of last year just because who could forget we were at a a period of time when there wasn't a lot of other athletic competition going on so it caught like a little bit of my attention um are you watching more of are you well how much of that are you watching and is it more than than the olympics at this point um so i i have watched some uh i like being able to tune in and like they so the the basketball tournament for the uninitiated is like a bunch of ex-college players still playing uh some of them come in from overseas they create these teams it's five on five they play like a full game um but the attraction is that you're seeing like players that you saw in college uh you know continuing to play so if you're an ohio state fan there's an ohio state team or um you know the an oregon team or, or whatever and they play like the winner of the this tournament gets a million bucks and they're like 64 teams. They put the whole thing on ESPN. It's been going on for about five years. And what I love about it is like, I saw a game yesterday that had the Marquette alumni team in it and Travis Diener. Joe, do you remember Travis oh, Diener do. from like 15 years ago? <laughs> I do. I'm surprised to hear he's still involved in something like that, but yes, Travis, I do remember. Travis Diener is out there running point for this Marquette alumni team, which is a one seed. And so therefore, like, it's pretty good. 39-year-old Travis Diener, who's now an assistant coach at Marquette. And, like, he's got the Brett Favre and the Levi Jeans look to him, by which I mean he looks pretty grizzled. There's there's some grain going on there. And so that's what I'm tuning in for there. Like, it's a totally different look than the Olympics, which I love as well. But the, uh, the basketball tournament is, is great for stuff like that. And I hope that Travis Diener and players like him keep playing until they're like 50, like go full on Silver Fox out there in like five years running point for, for the Marquette alumni team. Yeah, bringing the ball up with a walker with tennis balls in the bottom of it or, <laughs> you know, dragging a, you know, dialysis, dialysis machine behind him or something. Yeah, that's, um, that, you know, I found some joy in um, the, oh, by the way, I was, I was going to say that the, the basketball tournament is the college angle of that, I think, gives that some some real staying power you know versus like the big three which was another kind of offshoot basketball thing which i think is still technically around but they were trying to yeah they were on like a week ago or something i don't watch that but i, yeah. I noticed that was on they try to like lean heavy on like ex nba players and like so really what it ends up being is like the team that has the most recently retired nba player is the best one like joe johnson went off in that thing a couple of years ago so maybe it was last year i don't know but anyway the, the college angle i think really gives that the TBT, some, um, I guess that's redundant, the TBT, um, to gives TBT some staying power. And I noticed um, scrolling through Twitter the other day that I don't know if other schools have this kind of arrangement going on, but I saw that the Illinois alumni team, an alumni team whose name escapes me at this point, but their games are being broadcast on local sports radio in Champaign, which I, I don't know how many other schools have like local radio. Um, you know, how many of those teams have local radio for their games, but at least one does. And that kind of surprised me, to be honest, I guess it's, you know, the summertime and everybody's looking for some, some content, but the idea that there is some local Illinois broadcaster going to do radio play-by-play of these TBT basketball games is, uh, is really, really something. That is impressive. Now it's a little less impressive because they're probably in the Peoria regional. So it's, uh, it's not quite home games. I didn't realize it was okay. I didn't realize they were that, 
know that regional. Clearly, I'm I'm, I'm showing my <laughs> rear end as a novice TBT observer. I was going to pivot to talking a little bit about like one of the joys of the Olympics is now we just do like a full on like segment here, but like the three on three basketball is kind of fun. Like when they said they were going to do three on three basketball in the Olympics, I kind of rolled my eyes and was like, okay, like it, it what's next? Are, is it, this going to be like swimming where there's like 700 events, which I love by the way, like I enjoy the swimming, but all right, next is like four on four basketball, then like three point shootout is going to be an Olympic sport or something like that. I mean, obviously we can, you know, you can go on and on with that, but the three on three is actually kind of fun because it is such a fundamentally different game than the five on five game where it's, you have to transition so quickly from offense to defense, because as soon as they get the ball back beyond the three point line, you, you have to be ready to play defense again. So that adds a little bit of an element. So that's been different enough. It moves so fast. It really does. Like I didn't know what I was expecting to see when I turned it on, but I'd never really watched like high level three on three basketball, like, like that until I turned on Olympics this week and was like, Holy moly, like the cardiovascular readiness you have to have for that, I think is on a, on a different level. Like you might be able to take some possessions off in a five on five game that lasts 40 minutes or whatever, but like these games are so fast, they go to 21. Uh, so you don't, you can't really take any possessions off and you are constantly having to be on either moving the ball on offense or playing defense. So that, that's been kind of fun. Actually. I like, I, that's an event, a newer event that I've enjoyed. It's uh, it is it is a fun one. We're also excited to have baseball and softball back in the yeah. Olympics. Softball uh, just wrapped up this morning as we recorded on uh, Tuesday the twenty seventh. I don't know what time that was, Tokyo. I, I guess that's still Tuesday since it was this morning. Um, yeah. With uh, Japan beating the U.S. in the gold medal game, now the uh, the baseball kicks off. I think tomorrow, um, and uh, so looking forward to. Uh, to see baseball make, make its return, softball was able to, uh, they, they split them up, so softball goes first. Good to see those back. Of course, they won't be there in 24, and hopefully they'll be back in 28. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> good, good to have them back on, on this stage and, and to be able to, uh, to watch them from a, a selfish perspective. Like, I don't, you know, I'm not here to debate whether they should or shouldn't be in the Olympics, but uh, I enjoy watching them at the uh at the highest international level so good good to have them back and be looking forward to uh to watching the baseball over the next week or 10 days however however long they're they're going at it i don't offhandedly know when the gold medal game is yeah that, that'll be it's good to have that back i've always enjoyed watching that to the point where somewhere well i guess now they're probably gone because my my the house i grew up in is no longer belongs to someone in my family like that house has been sold and i you know, had my, my parents kind of went through some stuff and made some executive decisions while I was away. That's, that's the story of, of life there. But I had on a VHS tape at some point, like a VCR recordings of like the 04 Athens games, baseball, um, which were kind of fun because it was Greece being involved was a little bit of a curveball. You know, uh, they are, I think, as you alluded to no baseball in 24, a lot of that is, given that those games are going to be held in, in France, um, not a baseball playing country, really. Um, that ends up playing a role there versus 2028, Los Angeles, obviously, uh, in this example, Tokyo. Um, so that was a little wrinkle for the Greece Olympics. Also, like Australia made a run there in those Olympics. So I was kind of really into those. So I was like VCR recording overnight, uh, the, the baseball Olympics. So I, I've, I've kind of always enjoyed that. I, I do lament the fact that they have gone to six teams as opposed to eight as they had in the past. So they've kind of shrunk the field, which, you know, if that's what it takes to, in order to get them back, then I will, I will gladly take it. 
Um, but yeah, it's, it, it is disappointing that we are kind of on this yo-yo of, it seems like, you know, it just is going to depend on what the host city is uh, to determine whether or not we're going to get baseball and softball, which I guess good news, 2032 in Australia, uh, Australia, a baseball and softball country. So perhaps um, we'll get a little bit of an extended streak here, um, you know, of two in a row in 28 and, and 32, perhaps <laughs> for, for Olympic baseball and softball, but we will obviously have to see on that as time goes on. Yeah, long way to go. Who knows what, what happens between now and then. But we'll uh, we'll get back to the Olympic baseball team here in a little bit because you uh, you were able to see them uh, in, in those uh, final tune-up matches, like I mentioned. But first, let's, uh, let's tune our, our sights to, to that 2022, uh, early, early 2022 top 25, never too early top 25, as it were. Uh, we, we started doing this a year ago. Last year was a little bit done out of necessity. Just, <laughs> you know, it was, it was one of those things. Well, like if we can't keep talking about the five, four weeks of the 2020 season that we, we were able to see, maybe we need to start looking at the 2021 season. But I enjoyed the process of, of trying to put together uh, a top 25 that far out. And so we're uh, we're bringing that along here this year. It's a little bit. Uh, it's actually a lot harder to do this year. Last year there was a lot of, well, I guess pretty much the whole team's coming back except for the couple of players that got drafted in that five round draft. Uh, now with uh, with the twenty round draft, obviously a lot of uh, a lot more players moving on into pro ball, and. Uh, just a lot more turnover like we're used to seeing in college baseball. So it was uh, it was an interesting exercise to go through as started looking at which of these teams have which players coming back, and who's not coming back. And some of that's still up in the air. The draft signing deadline isn't until this weekend. Most players that were selected are signed, but not everyone. And uh, so we'll see where, where that goes in the, the final final days here. And We'll uh, maybe have an update next week. Still, still working through that. Definitely, at least going to uh, look through some of these teams harder uh, once we're able to see the the final tally of returners and, and arrivals. Uh, but, but all that is to say that there's still a long way to go before opening day, and things can change. But right now, the way the way we have it lined up is that Texas is number one. They return just an incredible wealth of talent from a team that very nearly made the College World Series finals and was the number two overall seed in the NCAA tournament as it was this year. Then we got Vanderbilt, Arkansas, the defending champs, Mississippi State, and Stanford rounding out your top five. You can see the full top 25 over at baseballamerica.com. Joe, let's let's touch on on Texas here momentarily. Uh, You and I both came to a pretty quick decision that this was the number one team so what did you what do you see from the horns that that had you thinking thinking that way? I think a large part of it is that what I perceive to be their biggest strength last season still should be a strength, and that's the pitching staff. I'm sure that not having time Madden is going to leave a hole to front of the rotation that they're going to have to to fix and address in some way. Uh, Cole Cantania was a good relief arm, but you know, getting back Tanner Witt, getting back Aaron Nixon, who are both extremely good in the bullpen last year, plus Pete Hansen, who was a little bit of a, an, an edge case, you know, he could have maybe gone, uh, maybe he comes back. We have to see now, you know, coming back. And then Tristan Stevens, 
um, a, a really solid piece there, probably a little bit overlooked. I'm probably not giving him just in my head enough credit for how good he was, but he feels like a little, you know, kind of a complimentary piece there, but that should again be a strength. And it kind of runs counter to what we see with a lot of the rest of these teams we have ranked here. I'm sure we'll talk about this more in depth on this episode, but a lot of, a lot of good offenses in this group, finding good pitching staff, pitching staffs we know are going to be good. I'm sure some will be good. Pitching staffs we know will be good going into the season are really few and far between. And so Texas gives us that certainty and they've gotten some, some good news, you know, getting Ivan Melendez back who we, we kind of anticipated it going that way, but he's made that official. So Ivan Melendez uh, returning. They also got uh, Austin Todd announced he was coming back, which is a name you brought up in Omaha as a guy who might come back for them. Uh, and it was a name I hadn't thought about in a long time. Obviously he missed the 2021 season. That's another nice complimentary piece. But then you talk about the defensive capability they have with whether you're talking about Trey Faltini at short or, or Mitchell Daly at second, Silas Ardwan behind the plate. Um, it feels just like a really well-rounded team, which is not always something we can say about Texas. You know, uh, talk a lot about pitching they're often a good defensive team offense is more of a question but it, when you talk about having the high-end talent and being able to beat a team in a lot of different ways I think you have to start with Texas yeah I uh I think they're the most complete team in the country right now you you ran through the returners and it's like, like you said they're all they're they just bring so so much back some of the the key departures there Mike Antico who came over and became a a solid part of that outfield as a transfer from St. John's. He moves on. Um, Zach Zubia, who has been such a key part of that team for the last four years in the heart of the lineup, he moves on. And of course, the, the All-American at the front of the rotation, Ty Madden, who was picked 32 overall by the Tigers. He's He is, of course, gone as well. But they're in a decent place to replace the that that group. You know, Ty Madden is going to be difficult. Uh, you know, we're talking about a, an All-American pitcher. Of course, that's going to be a, a challenging ask. But in Stevens and Hanson, they bring back, you know, the other two-thirds of their rotation, at least the playoff rotation. Uh, early in the season, Kobe Kubitschek was was more of the, the third guy than Hanson. Um, but, and he also is gone, but, but Hanson and Stevens bring a lot of starting experience back and Tanner Witt is probably the leading contender to move into the rotation to, to replace Madden. And he can absolutely do it. He's, he's got the, he's got everything you need to go out and be a starter, uh, for the horns. I don't know who the one is. And honestly, I don't care. However, they decide to line that up if they, decided that it was going to be Tristan Stevens because he has the most experience and, you know, okay, that's, that's fine. I, I get it. Uh, if it turns out to be Hanson because he has, you know, that kind of upside, especially if he's able to regain some of the velocity he showed at times in 2020. Uh, I, I can see that. And if it turned out to be Witt or some other, uh, you know, guy that they're moving from the bullpen, um, you know, I would, I would get that as well. So I, I just think that they have, best rotation uh they've got a great defense they've got a lot coming back offensively uh and they've got uh they, they've made some uh s- some strong additions as well uh Skylar Messenger coming over as a as a transfer from from Kansas he'll step in there at third base presumably for Cam Williams who also is uh has moved on but they're 
I mean, I, I loved Texas at the end of last season. I mean, I picked them to win the World Series for a reason, and the bulk of that team is back. So I, I just feel really good about where the Horns are going into 22. And if they are number one, if the Horns are number one at the start of next season, it'll be the first time they're number one coming into the season since 2010, which feels like just an absolute age ago. And in some ways it was, uh, but it's, it's been a while since they, uh, they have come into the season or, or it just had these kinds of preseason expectations really. Yeah. Kind of hard to believe it. It's been that long, but then you, you start to think about it and, and perhaps not so much because maybe it's easy to forget now, but part of the reason why it's such a big deal that Texas you know, sure, got back to Omaha in 2018, but then I think in particular getting back to Omaha this past season because it, it feels like kind of the start of maybe something bigger here and, and obviously projecting them as the number one team in the country is kind of what we're talking about there going into, into 2022. Um, there was a lot of – it was – to say they were up and down kind of in the later stages of Augie's tenure there um, is putting it kindly. Um, and even as recently as hey, 2019, this is a team that finished last in the Big 12 in 2019. So getting Texas back to a place where they are consistently what they can be on the high end is kind of what David Pierce and his staff are, are charged with. And I think this could be, now they have to go out and do it, but like this could be the start of that kind of run again. Um, you know, the terrain is a little bit tougher now than it was at previous times when Texas was, was top dog or among the top dogs in college baseball. Um, but this is a program that could still be that. It can still do that. Um, and again, they have to go out and do it, but perhaps that's what we're, we're witnessing here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now the, the next three teams are SEC teams and I see you, everyone that's making the joke about how the top four teams are all SEC teams. We'll get into that later. Um, two through four are going to play in the SEC, uh, in 22, Joe, we, we really, it was difficult to, to sort out Vanderbilt, Arkansas, and Mississippi State, and I don't think we're even close to being done trying to sort that out. Uh, but as you look at that now, is, is there a team from that group that, that stands out to you? And honestly, right now, it's really hard to evaluate Vanderbilt because why I, you know, I don't want to get into the, the draft signing stuff too terribly much because it's going to shake out. Uh, over the next few days, and we'll, we'll get into that next week. But right now, Vanderbilt has a couple of key players who are not signed in Jordan Lawler, who is, uh, you know, the top recruit and was drafted by the Diamondbacks sixth overall. Uh, and Kamar Rocker, who went 10th to the Mets. Neither of those guys is signed yet. I, I still assume that both of them will get it done. Teams need to sign top 10 draft picks, but uh, things could change on the Vanderbilt front. But, but again, from Vanderbilt, Arkansas, Mississippi State, is, is there anything that, that stands out uh, as, as we try and sort out those, those elite-end SEC teams? Yeah, I mean, setting aside, that's a good point because I, as I was thinking about this when you were posing it to me, I, I was going to lead with the, the signing stuff. So I'm glad you kind of threw that out there to start because now I can cast that aside a little bit um, because obviously that if they get Lawler and Rocker back, we're having a different conversation or even just – Rocker, frankly, we're having a little bit of a different thinking one of the two. Like right. It, having, things change there. We're having a very different conversation at that point. Um, but let's assume they both get signed because until they until they don't, that's the leader in the clubhouse is, is those guys getting signed. But one thing that's interesting about Arkansas is uh, sure they're they are not going to 
they're not likely to anyway, stumble into a Kevin Copps like turnaround on the mound and someone becoming the most dominant arm in college baseball, that doesn't seem likely to happen again. But I have to assume that they're going to figure something out on the mound there. Um, and the thing about it is that we've talked about in the past, it doesn't have to be anything that really blows us away. It just has to be good enough. A lot of last year, for as much as we talked about them feeling a little short, especially as the season went on, they almost pulled it off there. And then I think the other thing about Arkansas that's interesting is, you know, a guy you, a guy you actually wrote up in your Cape standouts, but Jace Bolrofen, who's coming over, transfer from Oklahoma, one of the top transfers in the country, is having a really good summer on the Cape. Um, you know, that's a guy who didn't really, you know, show his best best side of himself with Oklahoma as a freshman. Um, never really got going. Wasn't in a totally full time role. I'll, I'll admit I don't know fully what was going on there, if it was an injury concern or if he just had trouble breaking the lineup. I, I, I wasn't, you know, Oklahoma was not the most relevant team in the big 12 we were paying attention to. So not sure exactly there, but whatever it was, he just didn't have the freshman season that certainly he was hoping for and Oklahoma was hoping for, but now he looks maybe poised for a breakout with Arkansas and suddenly an already really good Arkansas offense looks like it could maybe be even better. Yeah. That's uh, a guy that, has been outstanding on the Cape. He was really highly touted out of high school. And if they're able to add that in to what already looked like a really good offense, um, you know, I think we talked about it on the last podcast with uh, Pin Stovall and Jalen Battles going undrafted, combining them with, you know, Robert Moore, Brady Slavens, Caden Wallace. Caden Wallace also having a pretty good season on the Cape. Uh, like that was already going to be a really good lineup. And now they've since had Borhoff. And, and um, I mean, they, they're looking really dangerous. The, the thing about Arkansas and Mississippi State, and to a certain extent Vanderbilt, but a lesser extent, uh, because they do return guys like Patrick Riley and Christian Little um, and Chris McElvain and Nick Maldonado. Um, Arkansas and Mississippi State are not super proven on the mound right now. Um, you know, you can point to certain guys for sure, you know, Landon Sims is a first team All-American for Mississippi State and Jackson Fristo started most of the year for them on Sundays, but they're going to have to replace a lot on the mound. Arkansas to replace a lot on the mound and Vanderbilt's replacing presumably again, the top two starting pitchers, two of the best starting pitchers in the country, probably the two best starting pitchers in the country. So how, how do you go about doing all that? Uh, and, and, and who's going to come out with, with the top pitching staff is going to be uh, a key development to follow this fall as, as we start to get, you know, a look at, at these teams in fall ball and then certainly most obviously into the spring because that's going to be something that I think all of those teams are still looking to settle uh, in, uh, in February of next year. I mean, a key thing with, with Mississippi State feels like what is what, what does Landon Sims end up being? You know, um, they run him out as a starter, which seems like is something they're they're going to uh, give a shot. Seems like something they should at least give a shot. Um, is he more like some of the better success stories? And a great one doesn't necessarily come to mind. I'm sure there is one just that's hitting me right in the face that I should be saying. But does he end up becoming like an all SEC type starting pitcher, or is it more like Michael Kirian at Louisville this year, um, where they end up kind of having to slowly move him back into a bullpen role because that was a better fit for him? Um, that feels like a kind of an important thing there. Save. Well, I mean, oh. Andrew Abbott, if we're going to talk. Oh, there you go. ACC There's, one. <laughs> There's one right there. Um, yeah. Is he more Andrew Abbott? Is he more Michael Kirian? 
in terms of what he ends up doing from a starting perspective. Now, maybe the decision gets made a little bit easier if Mississippi State has a couple of other guys in the starting rotation really step up and, and look the part. Maybe that makes it a little bit easier to say, well, let's, you know, maybe we'll toy with it, but it, we, you know, maybe let's not mess too much with what Sims's role is here. So we'll have to see on that, but that, that does feel like a real big thing that it's going to have a big impact on what Mississippi State ultimately is. Yeah, I would I would very much agree with that. And I think you have to give him the chance to start. I, I think you know you saw him be extended out three, four innings last year and uh still be pretty effective. Um, but at the same time, he's the best at what he does, uh, if you put him out there for two innings at a time. So and yeah, it, it, there's a lot to, to be worked with there, but I, I would expect he'll go into the rotation and then it'll just be a matter of how well it, how well it looks, how, how good it looks there and uh, how well he fares. So uh, definitely a lot to watch uh, with those teams. So that, that, like I said, is the top five, um, you know, Stanford, we didn't get into much there. They return just, uh, just about the whole offense. It feels like um, they, uh, they, they do have to replace some, some on the mound with uh, Brendan Beck and Zach Gretsch, uh, notably moving on. They do have some hitters to replace Nick Bruiser, Christian Robinson, Tim Tawa, all were solid pieces for them. But, you know, with uh, with a Cody Huff, with Brock Jones, Tommy Troy coming back, they've uh, they've just got a lot of offense. They look like the favorites in the Pac-12. They're going to have to figure some things out on the mound. Uh, but I know, Joe, you, you, you have said that uh, the feeling there was that the pitching was just a year behind the hitting which is to say that the breakout you saw offensively this year could be coming next year on the mound. Yeah, that, that's the hope anyway. You know, talking to Dave Esker earlier in the year when they were still really – I mean, this is before when – I, when I talked to him specifically about this, you know, that was before Alex Williams had come back. That was before Jacob Palish had really come back and, and been healthy. Those two guys ended up taking on pretty big roles as the season went along. Um, you know, and he, he said, you know, the pitching is basically a year behind where the hitting is now. I think you put it well when we were discussing these teams uh, in preparation for putting this list together that, well, okay, if, if, the, if the pitching makes the leap the hitting did last year, like Stanford's going to win the national title. And like, <laughs> I think that's a good way to put it um, because the chances of that quite happening are, are pretty slim, but I will say there were some young arms on this pitching staff that actually had nice years now late in the year, whether it was because they were worn down, whether it was because Stanford really wanted to lean on, really wanted to lean on the, the veteran guys they had, you know, Zach Gretsch, uh, Palish, you know, obviously Brennan Beck from a starting perspective, but whatever the reason, those guys ended up not really having the big roles come postseason time, but there are a handful of guys who were true freshmen this year in the bullpen who threw a lot of innings. And so it's not like they're going to be running out a bunch of guys who haven't had any experience whatsoever, but, but that's just, I, I don't think it's, it, it is oversimplifying it, but not by much to say that basically as, as the pitching goes is, is will will basically have bearing on what Stanford is because I think the offense is as much a certainty as anything else. Um, if the pitching is, is just kind of okay, like there's still going to be a very good team, still a favorite of the Pac-12. If the pitching is good or excellent, uh, suddenly now you, you truly are talking about a team that could win the national title. Whereas right now, we, yes, we do have them ranked in the top five, but right now I would probably put a cutoff behind Mississippi State at the very least, maybe even behind Arkansas right now to talk about the teams that I that I truly most see winning a national title in, in 2022. Understanding, of course, that we are an absurdly long way from, from those types of discussions, but 
they are a team that really does have kind of like something glaring that, that they'll have to really improve upon more so than I think the teams that are in front of them. Texas and Stanford national title contenders, and we are back to 1999 here. <laughs> That's in, right. In college baseball. Uh, actually, I guess not even Texas in 99. We probably have to rewind this to the 80s. Yeah, it is a very, it is a very old school. It's a, you know, the, uh, very, the uh, Cliff Gustafson and Mark Marquis days. Um, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. uh, in the late 90s, you know, right before Augie showed up, things, uh, things had taken a, a bit of a turn in Texas. So, yeah, we... Uh, Everything old is new again. That's uh, that's college sports for you. And both um, and both teams have, you know, there there are different opinions on the what Texas is doing uniform wise, but both teams have kind of tinkered lately with uh, classic looking uniforms and not necessarily to um, to uh, great reviews uh, all around. But uh, that's a discussion for a different day, I suppose. <laughs> uh, we got plenty of time for that. Um, all right, Joe, we're. Uh... We're going to get into more of this, this top 25 here in a second. But first, check this out. All right, Joe, we talked about the top five. As we look through the rest of this top 25, some things stand out to me. Uh, Notre Dame at number eight. Listeners might remember that uh, I was pretty high on the Oma Irish a year ago. Uh, Clearly, I'm even higher on them now, though, because while they were my Omaha sleeper a year ago, now I feel like, you know, at, at number eight, you're coming in with a lot more, a lot more buzz on that. Uh, LSU at 10 under first year coach Jay Johnson. Uh, speaking of first year coaches, Arizona at 12. Uh, Jay Johnson's former team now under the direction of Chip Hale. You got Oregon State at 13. I've, I've talked about them already on, on the podcast here. UC Irvine at 16, uh, indicating that they're the Big West favorites again. Um, and we got Nebraska coming in at 18. And I'd really have to dive into the, the archives here. I don't know the last time Nebraska started a season that highly, if, uh, if they do actually end up starting there in February or anything approximating it. Uh, so uh, any of that that strike you, or or is there some something else uh, in here that that you wanted to jump off on? Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in what you just mentioned there. Um, I would guess with Nebraska, like maybe coming off of like the '01 World Series, maybe I, you know I don't that that will be an interesting thing to 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 dive in on and see what the history is. History is there. <clears throat> We're talking about some teams here that when you talk about Notre Dame. Um, and then I'll throw another team into that group in Tennessee. Um, those are two interesting at 19 Tennessee. I, those are two teams that will be fascinating to watch um, because they are two teams that kind of the unquantifiable things will end up playing a role here. Um, that's not to say there, there aren't quantifiable things you can point to, to justify their ranking or justify they should be higher, or lower or whatever. But with Notre Dame, I think there's, there's no doubt that they really you know, they were flying full, they were, they were sailing full sail last year. You know, they had the wind at their back and they took advantage of an ACC that was just kind of okay. It was okay to good. Um, you know, there was a lot of parody in the ACC. They really took advantage of that. Now, uh, clearly we've seen they are talented and they are getting a lot of that talent back, but do we find out next year, um, now that they are a little bit of the, the hunted versus the hunter, uh, does that end up playing a role there? At Notre Dame, uh, do the do they get the performances they got from a lot of those guys in 2021? Do they get that again in 2022? Do we get a step back? 
Um, or maybe is there just more depth? Maybe if those guys aren't quite as good, the depth steps in a little bit, because that's one thing you could have said about Notre Dame. We did say this is that, you know, the high end guys are, are really good, but like, what do you get depth wise um, from Notre Dame? Tennessee is a similar thing. And that's a team that I think has helped themselves even since we put this, this thing together. I mean, Evan Russell announced he's coming back. Uh, Matt McCormick, a really good bat from West Virginia is transferring to Tennessee. So they've actually gotten some help since we put this list together. But there's also kind of an ephemeral thing there too, where that was clearly a team that thrived on emotion, right? They, they get pushed to the brink by Wright State in the beat, at the start of their regional. Uh, they get a walk-off grand slam. They blow through the rest of that regional. They blow through a super regional and they get to Omaha and it was kind of like the air had been let out of the balloon. Um, they, they looked a little spent. Uh, emotionally as much as anything else. So clearly a team that rides a little bit of a roller coaster. So can they capture that magic again in 2022? I think one thing that bodes well for them is the fact that they do have a decent amount of those guys back. They also got some news about some of their veterans who have been in the program a long, long time that had one more year left to go and they've gotten some of those guys back. So there is a veteran presence there that I think can help that be um, it can't help them from, from taking too much of a step back this next season, but, but you do wonder if there was a little bit of magic they were capturing in 2021 that they may be in a year where they're going to have to rebuild at least a little bit. You, you do wonder if maybe that's something they don't get back in that same way. So I think those two teams are a little bit similar in that way. And I would even, you mentioned Nebraska, uh, talk about unquantifiable things. Like, I, you know, I can't really fight the feeling, and I think we're in the same boat here. There's a reason we have them ranked where we do that a, a corner has been turned at Nebraska. It really feels like, um, and, and that's something that they will have to prove out. Um, it's not something that I can really necessarily point to one particular thing why I, I feel that way, but I, but I do kind of feel that way in my bones a little bit. We'll have to see if that ends up being the case, but it, it does feel like the version of Nebraska that we've always kind of thought could exist in the big 10 um, is maybe getting back, to that point. And, and now, of course, the fun part is we, we get to see whether or not that plays out. You mentioned how Tennessee has gotten good news since we put this together. Well, I feel like Nebraska's got bad news because Jackson Hallmark signed late as a free agent. He was their leading hitter a year ago. I was excited about them returning Hallmark and Anderson, uh, Max Anderson. Uh, that would have meant they had their top two hitters back. Uh, they lose some stuff in the rotation. They lose Spencer Schwellen back. Um, who is the, the most important loss uh, as, as shortstop slash closer and an All-American. Like, that's that's the biggest loss. But I, I, I do think that they've got – things are on the rise at Nebraska, it feels like, under Will Bolt. that uh, feels like they have some momentum that they can ride into this year. Uh, we'll see, though, with the Big Ten overall. It's just going to be a different thing when you have to go out and play non-conference competition to start with. And how, how do you learn from, from those non-conference games? How do you build on that? How do you take that forward? You know, all the rest of it. We'll, we'll see what any of those teams look like. The Big Ten, I do feel like, is a little bit open right now. I mean, like, we like Nebraska the most. But I think if you look at Michigan, you look at Maryland, um, you figure Indiana probably will figure out how to still be consistently good. That's just the history of the program there over the last decade. Um, you know, there'll be some competition there for, for the Huskers, but right now they, uh, they are an exciting group. Um, I have a feeling we'll get into LSU more significantly down the road. 
but but briefly here, Joe, as as we look at at LSU, um, they have this incredible offense potentially next year. They added Jacob Berry. They got Dylan Cruz back. They got uh, Trey Morgan back. They have Kate Doty back. They've they've got the offense back with the addition of an All American in, in Jacob Berry and the addition of a high-powered offensive coach in Jay Johnson. The big question now is who's going to pitch for them. Uh, that That is a, a concern with, with Landon Marceau moving on and A.J. Labus, who covered a fair amount of innings as well. And, and that's, uh, you know, we, we've talked about this before with LSU, but, you know, it just seems like that's that's the entire crux of the matter there. But if they figure it out, I mean, you know, we talked about how, Arkansas and Mississippi State are in the same boat. I mean, if uh, if LSU is the team to figure it out there in the SEC West, you can throw Ole Miss into this as well at number nine. Somebody is going to figure out how to throw the ball in the SEC West. They're all going to, to hit pr- pretty well, we assume. And uh, whoever figures out how to pitch it the best is going to end up as a, as a national title contender. Yeah, and someone will like like I said earlier, like we there someone will emerge here. Um, and why not LSU? The thing about LSU that I like that I don't know if we talked about this on air. We talked about this, you just you and I that are putting this ranking together. But you know, Jason Kelly being at LSU feels like a big deal. Just look at the work he did with Arizona State this past season, where that team was just you know quite literally it's three or was it four maybe best best pitchers went on the shelf early in the year. And he was still able to get granted, you know, they had a really good offense and that helped, but he was still able to cobble enough pitching together to get that team into a regional, um, you know, and, and, you know, good luck to, I mean, there are any, how many teams out there just would not have been able to, to get that across the finish line. You know, you take the four best pitchers out of a, of a pitching staff and like, see how well you do. So I think he's really, uh, really good piece to have there because I think he will get the most out of what they've got. Um, Otherwise, uh, you know, you tell me, is Eric Razelman uh, doing anything for you as a potential savior at LSU? Because, you know, he's going to be. A, I mean, he is. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's a guy who, you know, coming back from an injury at San Francisco, um, you know, when I, I do the WCC preview, or at least have the last couple of years uh, for the site. And, you know, he's a guy that uh, Nino Girantano has, has kind of pumped up a little bit. And, you know, we we're just kind of in wait and see mode because of his injury. And now, you know, this is you know, this is the, um, the side of transfers that coaches don't like the idea of is like, okay, he's healthy and he's throwing high nineties now and he's off to LSU. Um, that's the, the way the game works though. But, um, you know, he's a guy, um, they could have a big role. They've obviously got some high profile pitchers coming in in the recruiting class. We, we've talked about the guys who are returning, whether it's, it's Hilliard or Helmers, guys like that, who I think will just be solid pieces. Um, if not standouts, um, I just, I have a little, I have, a certain amount of confidence that I don't think LSU is probably going to be one of the better pitching teams in the SEC, but I do have a pretty decent amount of confidence that they're going to cobble something together that at least gives that offense a chance to shine and win some games for them. Yeah. I, uh, I like what they have there. They're building some real depth. It remains to be seen how you fit it all together. Uh, but I, I do think that they have some options at least. And uh, that, that's, that's going to be where it starts and it's July. It's, it's fine to not know exactly how they're going to fit together, particularly when you have a first year coaching staff. Um, a lot of teams fall into that boat. So we'll, we'll just have to see where that goes. So that's uh that's our early look at the top 25. Obviously 
it'll continue to change, you know, even once we get past the, uh, the signing deadline for, for the draft this weekend transfers, there are still a fair number of players in the portal that are, uh, you know, potentially impact players at, at top 25 schools. So, you know, as, as, as that continues to go, teams will continue to shape up here, but uh, over the next couple of weeks, I would expect teams to take the shape that they will. And then you go into fall ball and find out what you got. Um, and then we'll reevaluate and, and all the rest of it going into the season. But this is, this is our first look. And, uh, you know, it, I, I'm excited about what 22 can be as a college baseball season this year. There was just so much, um, of a sameness coming into it. The, the players were, were so similar now. We got a lot shaken up and we'll uh, we'll get a chance to, to see what, uh, you know, how teams go about reloading and uh, rebuilding in a, a more normal cycle when you lose, uh, you know, a significant number of players at once. All right, Joe, you mentioned Eric Razelman there at the end. Uh, that was a player I saw on Cape Cod a week ago. Uh, it was uh, it was a pretty good look at Eric Razelman. He started his outing with like four hitless innings before uh, finally, I think, gave up a run in the fifth inning. I don't know. It was, it was several days ago now. Uh, but he looked he looked pretty impressive there. We, we've had a chance now over the last uh, week or two to see some pretty impressive players ourselves. Like I mentioned, you were watching the collegiate national team. I was on Cape Cod. Um, let's uh, let's start with the the national team. They, after playing a series of scrimmages against each other, barnstorming through the uh, the Appalachian League uh, stadiums, uh, they they condensed to one team and took on the Olympic team. Uh, there in North Carolina as a, as a warm-up for the Olympic team going into Tokyo. You were on hand for, for those games. What, uh, what, what stood out to you about the, the collegiate team that as they finished their summer schedule? Well, uh, for, first off, I, I, I don't mean to be uh, to, to cut off your, your segue there because it was, it was good and professional, but is, is on Cape Cod one of those things like on Long Island? Do you say yeah. on Cape Cod? Interesting. Yeah. I didn't realize yeah, you're, you're on the Cape. You're in the Cape League, but you're on the Cape. Wow. Okay. Good to know. I'll, I'll file that one away. It's it's a Long Island situation. Interesting. Um, yeah. So a couple of things. One, um, there's a little bit of a double-edged sword offensively, I think, or a couple of ways to look at it offensively for Team USA. That's where a lot of the star power is for this team, I would say. Um, but one thing that was made very clear is, is the difference in very good college hitters and guys who in many cases have been big leaguers are knocking on the door of the big leagues or at the very least have been knocking around the minor leagues for a long, long time. Uh, Team USA, collegiate national team struck out 48 times in three games. And those games were eight innings, nine innings and eight innings. So they, you know, a couple innings shy, actually, I'm sorry, seven, nine and eight. So several innings shy of a full three games and 48 strikeouts in three games. And especially high strikeout totals against the guys who are more polished, you know, Scott Casimir, guys like that who have been doing this for, for a long, long time. So I think it was just a very nice reminder that as good as these guys are, there is a difference between where they are and where the Olympic team is um, and, and how far they, they have to go. Hitting change-ups was a particular struggle point for the college hitters. You just don't see a lot of, you know, 
uh, big league level changeups in the college game, but, but I digress, but this is, I think where a lot of the, the big star power was, um, you know, Brooks Lee was a, a standout. I think he was probably the most impressive hitter in the three games against the Olympic team, even though he it was really only the third game where he had a big game, but a, a three for four day in the final game of that series against the Olympic team, including a home run to lead off the game against Simeon Woods Richardson, who was one of the real prospects on the Olympic team. Um, so he, he really and actually college aged. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's 20 and yeah, exactly. The type of guy Brooks Lee would be facing if, if Simeon Woods Richardson was in the college game, but um, so he, he really kind of stood out. And I think it's part of the reason why maybe, um, you know, when you look at the, the 2022 draft class in, in college baseball, or you look at just even from a college perspective, like where the star power is, I think having a player of his caliber at a place like Cal Poly, as opposed to UCLA, for example, or even an SEC team, I think it's one of the reasons you have that because he is every bit the bona fide star you look for in college baseball. Um, it's a good story, um, and you will be able to actually read that story in print coming soon uh, in Baseball America. I just polish it off, as a matter of fact. So, um, you know, showed a lot of physicality. That's the thing that struck me about him was that he's bigger than I thought he would be. Um, maybe it was just because I'm looking at like shortstop, Cal Poly. Uh, you know, there's a stereotype about West Coast, like players being a little bit smaller, a little more slight. The Big West is not a power conference. Uh, and I mean that not just in a, in a power, like in terms of power five. I also mean it in terms of like, you don't get a lot of physical players in the Big West. Um, but there's a physicality there that I was really underselling. Um, so that's interesting. He, he really just popped in a way that that not everyone did in that setting. Um, one of the other guys just quickly was Gavin Cross in that way, who, again, a little bit overlooked because it's, it's Virginia Tech. They weren't a postseason team. They were kind of an also ran in the, in the ACC when it came right down to it in 2021. But, you know, a guy who coming out of those scrimmages was hitting as well as anybody else, struggled a little bit against the Olympic team like, like everyone really did. But um, he's a guy I think is going to get a lot more attention going into this, this next season. And then of course there were, you know, Jacob Berry and, and Brock Jones, um, you know, both of those guys really kind of struggled, frankly, in the three games against the Olympic team, but um, you kind of saw what you were um, looking to see from them in terms of the tools and, and the physicality. And, and they did hit a couple of, of balls hard and it, interesting little subplot there with Jacob Berry as he's playing first base. Um, he will not play first base at LSU. I can, unless Trey Morgan is not available. Um, he will not be playing first base. And that continues to be a question with Jacob Barry. It's, it's a, it's a nitpick because of how good a hitter he is, but that's where they had him. I mean, I wonder days. about that though. Um, you know, I haven't, I, I don't know how LSU is going to approach that this year, but it's a new staff and Trey Morgan's plenty athletic enough to play the outfield. He is mm. an exceptional first baseman. Uh, so that that's why he remains at first base because the, the feeling is like much like Evan White you know, you just save a bunch of runs that way with, with picks and the like. But if uh, if they can't figure out how to put all the pieces together, I, there, there remains an option to try him in the outfield. Yeah, that would be interesting. And, you know, and I have to, for those uninitiated, um, the college coaches do have some say in how their players are used. Um, so perhaps it was a thing where they're like, Hey, let, you know, get, give him some time if you can at first and let's see how that kind of goes. Now that's also compounded with the fact that there were a glut of players who could play the left side of the infield on this team. Um, you know, Brooks Lee was playing a lot of third base, for example. Um, so that's, 
also probably part of it. If we, if you wanted to get Jacob Braden lineup, you were going to have to figure out a way to, to do it that didn't just have him sitting over at, at third base or DHing. So that's part of it as well. So uh, offense, I think it was tough to gauge. You know, I felt like I, I was tweeting through these games and I wasn't tweeting much offense because there just wasn't a ton to report on there. Um, they were just overmatched. That's all there is to it. And that's okay. Like that's not a criticism. That's just the reality of the situation. So there was more to, to glean on the, on the pitching side. And, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag. I think uh, the positive here is that I think there were a couple of guys who really popped off the, off the, the screen or off the field, if you will, um, that I think people are going to enjoy watching the next, this, this coming season. And that's Paul schemes at air force and, and Reggie Crawford at UConn. And um, I think part of the reason they popped the way they did is one is because there's just kind of people get excited about the, the unknown or the, the, the player they're just discovering. But in terms of just electricity, those were the two guys who stood out to me in, in short stints. You know, Crawford was up to 99. We've known he's had this kind of power arm. We talked to Jim Penders in the podcast about it at, at, at roughly this time last year, maybe a little later in the year. But, you know, we talked a decent amount about him. Um, and then Skeens was, you know, mid-90s fastball with an absolutely filthy changeup. Um, it was probably the best college changeup that I saw among that group. It was just outstanding. So those guys really, really jumped and It's worth saying too, they are two of the fresher arms. A lot of these, especially the starters have thrown a hundred some odd innings at this point. Those two guys have not, they're both relievers and didn't throw very much compared to a lot of their teammates. So they're a little bit fresher. So that probably helps a little bit, but. Um, now, it should be said that both of them are two way players as well. So like, indeed. yes, fresher, but also like not fresher. And so yeah, ways. that's true. That's true. Um, but the flip side especially of this, schemes so. as a catcher. Uh, yeah, that's true. It's a good point. I mean, he is, so he's probably, um, yeah, interesting, but yeah. So those guys really kind of, I think pop for me as the two guys who stood out. They also, you know, really have the scouts buzzing plenty of scouting heat at these games, but I think, so that's the positive spin of that. The more critical spin on that is I think those guys popped in part because there wasn't a ton else that was really popping on the mound, you saw plenty of velocity, although less than, than you would have liked in some cases, but those are the guys who are really putting up big numbers. Aaron Nixon, uh, you know, was given us, shown us some velo and some really sharp stuff, but in terms of stuff that really jumped off the page, like it was just kind of, you know, I don't want to say underwhelming because that's not fair, but it, it just didn't really wow me. Um, and, you know, you look at the, some of the numbers coming out of the scrimmages, even taking the, the Olympic team, series out of out of the question there um you know the best starter statistically in these scrimmages was was Carson Wisenhunt from East Carolina and he wasn't even on the squad that took on the Olympic team and I don't say that as a criticism to Carson Wisenhunt who had a, a really good first year at East Carolina and is going to be a huge part of a very good East Carolina team in 2022 I think it's a very bright future that's not a criticism he had a really nice summer but when that's the name of the guy who was really dominating the scrimmages against you know against each other like that tells you something about just kind of the pitching we were looking at uh, for Team USA. And, you know, outside of him, in terms of guys who threw extended innings, you know, that I saw in the Olympic series, Brandon Sprout was probably the best one. And that's a guy who really hasn't broken through in, in a spring season yet. Um, and he still struggled with some walks in his outing. So it, you know, there were good arms on display, but whether it was the fact that a lot of them are worn down or whether it's just because, um, you know, they're, facing professional competition. We have to remind ourselves of that again, um, whatever it was. And, and, and I had people talk to me about, about this. It's not just my assessment. I had people kind of talking to me about, eh, it feels like a little bit of a down group, does it not? And, and the consensus was that, yeah, it feels like a little bit of a, 
little bit of a down group, which is obvious, obviously still an excellent and an extremely talented team, but it, it did kind of strike me as, as kind of being a little bit of a, a down group with USA. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the whole college draft class next year is a little down and that's slightly unfair. I think probably because what we have in mind is a 2020 class uh, that, you know, had a superstar at the top and Torkelson and, you know, plenty of other guys that, that were really good around him uh, and didn't have a chance maybe to show all of their warts uh, because the season got canceled. And then you have this overloaded 21 class that had, you know, the two exceptional Vanderbilt pitchers, um, you know, that, that you could spend, all, that we spent all year talking about how good they were. Uh, so now it just is a little bit of a reset, I think, and and maybe this is more average, maybe it's below average, I don't know, but I, I do think that 22 draft class from a college perspective, at least, um, is down from certainly the last few years. And even, you know, 19, you had the best college draft prospect since, I don't know, take your pick, Strasburg, like, at, at at the at the high end maybe chris bryant more recently but like whatever adley was exceptional and you know so the last few college draft classes have just been a little a little more special i think than than this one right now and we'll see maybe guys will emerge uh as as the year continues but right now i do i do find that to be a fair assessment and i'm not stunned that that's the way it felt anyway uh looking at usa uh, as for the Cape, it's just good, first of all, to have the Cape back. The uh, not, not having it a year ago was was really unfortunate for everyone, you know, the players especially, but the people up on Cape Cod that put so much work into, you know, making that league happen, volunteers and host families and, and the managers and, and everyone up there just they, they put a lot of effort into it and to have to have had to cancel the season last year. Very disappointing. So just glad to have it back. Uh, there are some very interesting things going on up there in terms of player development. Uh, I wrote about 10 breakthrough players, one from each team. We didn't have an all-star game. So trying to spotlight some of the players that have had breakthrough moments up there. Um, I didn't get to them all. Uh, Brock Wilkin from Wake Forest, I did not write about. He is, however, uh, having a very impressive year after a, a pretty solid freshman season at Wake Forest. Uh, you know, he's he's one of the best hitters in the league now, and you know is is moving up as a as a 2023 draft prospect. Uh, we mentioned Jace Borhoffen, mentioned Eric Razelman, who you know has. The injury he was coming off of limited him to 35 innings and pretty, some pretty short stints uh, this last spring, but he seems like he's getting closer to, to full health up there. He's throwing 96, uh, you know, has a throws from a, a lower slot, looks like somebody that really can be an impact for LSU in some role. I don't know if that means in the rotation. That means in the bullpen, you know, we'll we'll have to see how LSU sorts that out. But I, I do think he's going to make an impact uh, for LSU uh, this uh, 
this spring in, in, in some sort of fashion on the mound. I saw him against Tanner Witt and Tanner Witt looked, looked great. He's uh, he's been working on a cutter in his time in the, this summer. And, you know, I mean, if, if that pitch becomes something for him and he's just getting to the point where he's working it into games uh, you know, that just makes him all the, all the more dangerous. And uh, like I said, I, I, I expect him to be able to move into the Texas rotation in some fashion this spring. And, um, you know, he continues to look like one of the, the top prospects in the, the 2023 class himself. Um, yeah, there, there's just a, a, a lot, a lot to be said uh, about a lot of those players. The, the other one I want to mention here is um, Dominic Keegan, who was drafted in the 19th round by the Yankees out of Vanderbilt, where he had you know a great season as a first baseman. He is not signing. At least that's the plan as of now. I, I do not see that changing in the next few days, but you know whatever. Um, he uh, he's going to go back to Vanderbilt. He was young for for the class, so he's not even 21 yet. Um, and he's hoping to catch next year for Vanderbilt, which is something that he hasn't really had a chance to do yet, but probably was on track to do. And if uh, if he hadn't gotten hurt in the fall of 2019, so if he is able to catch next year for Vanderbilt, that would be good for Vanderbilt because it would keep Keegan's bat. Uh, or get, get Keegan's bat in the lineup, open up first base for somebody else, whether that's Spencer Jones, who is running around playing center field uh, in the Cape and, and looking very good doing it. Um, or, you know, whatever, that, that, would, that would make the Vanderbilt lineup all the more potent. And, you know, as, uh, as Vanderbilt replaces C.J. Rodriguez, they, they do have an opening to catcher. So uh, something to, to track there. He's not... Uh, um, Keegan is not exclusively catching on the Cape. He's, he's on a team with Cody Huff. So he's sharing the, the position and playing a lot of first base still. But if, uh, if the returns in fall are good, that could be a, a pretty significant development for Vanderbilt going into next season. And I lied one more. I wanted to mention Chase DeLauder from James Madison is a player that was absolutely not on my radar coming into this summer. Part of that's because James Madison played 28 games this spring. And that's, I was tied for like the fourth fewest in college baseball last year. So we just didn't have a chance to see much of JMU. And then, you know, they were not, they were a sub 500 team that played 28 games. They just, they were not super on the radar at all, but DeLauder led them in in hitting and he's now up having a fantastic summer and really looking like a player you need to pay attention to for the 22 draft, probably the biggest 22 breakout prospect in the Cape league. Uh, he, he can do pretty much anything. He's playing center field. He runs pretty well. He hits for power. He also pitches um, as a left-hander. That's not going to be his future at all, but yeah, I mean, just he, he does a lot of things really well on the baseball field. And it's been a long time since James Madison has had a player uh, that, that was a, a premium draft prospect, but that's what they've got this year into lauder so just uh something to watch there uh from jmu which you know kind of adds to to what you were talking about joe with you know brooks lee at cal poly um you know reggie crawford at, at uconn you know we've seen pitchers from uconn before but you know if uh j- just more 
the 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 talent in this this uh, twenty two draft class does seem to be spread out to to some different places than than where we're used to looking. Shout out to Kellen Kobaki at JMU. Oh, that's yeah. the, the name yeah. from, from the past there. A um, couple of names here that, that caught my eye too. You mentioned Brock Wilkin, who's not on the list you put, but like you mentioned him, um, you know, Wake Forest, you know, always has intriguing players. Um, you know, we're, we're always in wait and see mode on whether or not that ends up like with a winning team at the end of it. Uh, the last couple of years, famously, they've had like really interesting players and it hasn't amounted to a ton of, a ton of winning. And, and now, they've kind of moved a lot of those players through the program. And, and I'm not suggesting that there was anything like going on there with that group. It's just sometimes a hard reset can be a good thing, I think sometimes. And so Wake kind of has that a little bit. And so you talk about Brock Wilkin, you talk about Eric Adler out of the bullpen. Um, they've got some interesting pieces who are playing well on the Cape. That'll be a fascinating team to see like, okay, what does this version of Wake Forest look like? Because it, it quite literally has been like same group of players for the last three or four years now. So Chris Lansilly, by the way, having another good summer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that, that's just a little something to, to file away. Cause uh, you know, we, we will continue to take a wait and see approach on, on Wake Forest, but like, you know, who knows, like that, that we, we, we may see a, a different, a different team out there in, in 22. Um, another one, Adam Mazur, interesting guy there, South Dakota state to Iowa transfer that you have listed here. He's a guy who kind of came on my radar because, again, doing the Summit League previews, um, you know, South Dakota State, more so than any team really not named Oral Roberts in, in the Summit League, like finds guys on the mound. Like they always seem to kind of have a guy who's not just like productive, but also like is kind of prospecty. And, and they had one in Adam Mazur. Now he's on the way to Iowa. I mean, it's a- the, the interesting thing about Mazur and Razelman both is that neither of them really had like if you look, just look at Mazur's ERA, he was like a five ERA, both, right. in, both in 20 and 21. He has a lot of strikeouts. I, I you know, and I, I haven't really dug into the peripherals to see, you know, just as, you know, what is that about the ERA, but it's just interesting that guys like that, um, you know, are, are moving. Obviously they're, they're, they've got the stuff to, to go be successful, but they haven't really had their breakout moments yet. And, and they're, you know, going out and, and doing that now instead uh, this summer. Yeah, with Mazer, uh, I know that walks have been an issue um, in the past. So I'm, I'm assuming a lot of that comes from, from free passes and, and things of that, things of that nature, but the stuff is, is very good. And that'll be interesting at, at Iowa because it's, Iowa is kind of notoriously snake bitten when it comes to guys at the front of their rotation. I mean, they, they had a good year out of Trenton Wallace this past year, but it seems like they have a, a, a top pitcher get injured in the preseason every single year. And so um, perhaps, you know, Mazer can, uh, can help out in that way um, for an Iowa team that always feels like it's trying to figure things out on the mound, even as the, even as the season is going on. So that's kind they of, they always have right a lot of there. pieces, but yeah, it's, it's just a matter of how they're going to, how they're going to put them together. And they're definitely in that mode uh, this year. They got a lot of options, but how it's going to, to shape up, we don't know yet. Well, he's, you know, he'll give them a little bit of stuff too. Cause the other thing about Iowa's pitching as we, as we know, deep dive their pitching staff is like, they've got a lot of guys who are like funky, like low slot sweeping sliders. Like it, they don't always have a guy with like stuff, you know, on, on the staff. And, and he's, he's definitely that, that kind of, kind of guy. So it, it'll be a little bit of a, I don't want to say a different look necessarily because they've had those guys in the past, but like he will, he will definitely be someone they don't always have 
um, as an option in the rotation. Yeah, so uh, he is currently leading the Cape in ERA. So uh, he's uh, he's doing something right there up uh, up at Wareham. A lot of interesting players. I'm looking forward to diving into my top 50. But yeah, if you're interested in top 50 prospects on the Cape, I should say. But if you're looking for a taste, uh, you can go get 10 guys that have, have been standouts so far. And, you know, in that group, there are some guys like Tanner Witt, who, you know, I mean, their names, you're not, you're not, they're not breaking out. You know, Bryce Hubert was uh, the number two starter at Florida State and a good one this year. He, he's on there. He's leading the Cape in strikeouts. Um, I think he's number two in ERA. Uh, so some, some of those guys, but who are just having, you know, they're, they're doing something this summer that, that is pushing them even further. Or there are some guys that are a little further off the radar, you know, like a Delauder or an Eric Adler at Wake Forest that, that you probably just haven't quite, you know, we, we, we haven't talked a ton about yet and are using this summer as a little more of a, of a breakout situation. So hopefully kind of a good meld of that, but then we'll, uh, we'll have the top 50 prospects from the league uh, here in a few weeks as I, uh, as I start to, to work through what that's going to look like. All right, Joe, the last thing we wanted to talk about today here on the Baseball America podcast is the realignment situation uh, playing out right now uh, with Texas and Oklahoma today, Tuesday, as we record this, they uh, formally wrote to the SEC to request that they um, join the, the conference. We don't know when that'll happen uh, quite yet. The uh, via TV rights, Oklahoma and Texas are tied to the Big 12 through 2025. Um, no one seems to expect them to play the next four years in the Big 12, having gone through this, but they're at least going to play there again this year and maybe next year, and then maybe they'll be able to get out of it. Um, so this is going to be a slow-moving thing because there's a lot of money at stake and a lot of lawyers and contracts and all the rest of it. Uh, but what is clear right now is that Oklahoma and Texas are on their way out. The Big 12 is now in turmoil, and the SEC is picking up two of the, the biggest brands in college sports. Uh, Joe, before we get into this from a baseball perspective, I have a feeling that you have feelings about this, both as a uh, as someone who grew up in Big 12 country and just a, a general college sports fan. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you got some feelings, so let's uh, let's hear them. Yeah, indeed. Um, I mean, first off, it, this is just kind of, we could have predicted this in 2011 or whatever it was, right? I mean, the Big 12 has just always been a step behind. And I mean that in a big picture sense. I also mean it just in terms of things like look around it. You know, we, we bag on the Pac-12 for the Pac-12 network, but like they have a network, you know, and the Big 12 was always was just behind on that kind of stuff. But it has ended up playing such a huge role in college athletics and in the direction of college athletics and in the haves and have nots. And so they behind on stuff like that, but also just behind on, they seem to be caught flat footed on a lot of this stuff. It wasn't, but a couple of weeks ago at big 12 media days that Bob Bowlesby said, Oh, realignment doesn't really keep me up at night. It seems like a lot of the factors that were driving realignment a decade ago have dissipated. Well, here we are. And maybe he knew something there. Maybe he didn't, you know, maybe he was, you know, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd like to think that he had some inkling of this and he was just trying to maybe, start to salt the land a little bit that, that, that maybe would help turn the tide on that, but I, you know, whatever, but either way, like this just seemed like such an eventuality. Uh, once things started shifting the way they did when the big 12 
frankly scrambled. It's a good athletic department, but like scrambled to grab West Virginia. And that's been such a, a difficult arrangement for WVU as much as anybody else, although everyone has to travel to Morgantown as well. But when they really had to scramble to grab those types of schools just to keep it together. Um, and then, you know, the, I, they have these two programs that really have kind of take up so much of the oxygen in the conference. And they gave so many concessions to, you know, Texas in particular with the Longhorn Network. They were really willing to, and by all accounts, were willing to um, bend over backwards again to keep those two teams in the conference this time around, um, all for naught, apparently. Um, this is just something that like they, they were never going to roll over and just say, you know what, you're right, we'll disband and we'll let our, our, our member institutions go find where they'd like to play. Um, that was never going to happen. But at the same time, like this was entirely predictable uh, as long ago as the last big round of realignment when, you know, the Nebraska and Colorado and, and Mizzou and Texas A&M moved on. This day has been coming and, and we've just now kind of gotten here for a number of reasons. And the, the biggest one, of course, is, is money. And that's, I think, we all understand that, that money is what's driving these decisions. No one, I think, no one who really follows this is naive enough to, to think that there is much of, of any other driver for what happens with these kinds of big picture moves in athletic, in college athletics. But I think what makes this one feel a little bit icky to people and what kind of makes this one, makes makes people's skin because they're not even the you know I, i'm sensing that there's there was big time enthusiasm when a&m and, and missouri got into the sec and, and like maybe i just haven't found it in the right spots but it doesn't feel like there's kind of this excitement or enthusiasm about this move and, and i feel like maybe and i'm sure you can find that in circles with texas and, and ou especially because like now they're they have found safe harbor in the sec right they don't have to worry about the big 12 collapsing underneath them anymore but I think a big part of, of what's happening there is like, we realize now this is a naked money grab. And even though we knew that to go in, I think there's just the realization of, well, how much money do you need? Because certainly in Texas's case, they don't need it. <laughs> like they're already among the richest, if not the richest athletic department going. Um, and so you just realize that it's never going to be enough money. And that's a hundred percent what this is about. Cause you can't, you can't really make a competitive argument for this because football wise, the much easier path to the college football playoff is winning the big 12 for those two teams. The path to the CFP is very, very clear. I mean, I, I will say that I, I think the one thing that's been missing and maybe this is me, not a college football expert being stupid about this, but like as good as Oklahoma has been and as good as Texas can be in theory, you know, we'll see. It's been a while, but as good as Oklahoma has been, they've never been the number one team in the country. And in part, that's been because everyone looks around and says, well, okay, you beat Texas Tech and you beat West Virginia and you beat Kansas State. And really, who cares about any of that? Go beat somebody that matters. Well, they're never going to have to, if they go undefeated, they will be the number one team in the country. You know, I, I think that maybe that's part of the competitive argument here. Yeah, fair enough. And that that's, I'm glad you bring that up because I mean, that is a, a fair counter argument to be there. And ultimately the, the thing that is unknowable now is balancing, okay, how many, you know, how many of those years where they got into the CFP as members of the big 12 at 12 and 0, or, or I guess 13 and 0 or 12 and one would have been nine and three seasons in the sec. And even in a 12 team playoff, they get left out. Like that's unknowable. Um, but that that's kind of the trade-off that they are ultimately going to end up, end up making here. So I, I guess we can say it, the simpler path on paper is through the Big 12. 
um, you know, you win the Red River game, you win the Big 12 title game, and you avoid slip-ups to whichever of the other teams in the Big 12 is the best team that year. Um, and that's the path. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's, it's a money grab, and we know that. And I don't even say that cynically. That seems like I'm being very cynical about it. Like, I understand it and also kind of can roll my eyes at it and be like, you know, how much how much money is going to be enough? Like what, what amount would you like us to write you a check for? Because that's like, that seems like this is where this is, this is ending. So um, the more interesting move to me, and, and this, we won't get into this because it's, it's a very overwrought conversation on Twitter that I, that I kind of try to avoid, but like the more interesting thing is what happens from here. And that's going to have really far reaching when we talk about college baseball, that's going to have really far reaching implications because I think it can alter a number of leagues um, much in the same way that Nebraska is showing up in the Big Ten and suddenly you have, oh, this is a program with a great facility, a great fan base, um, some history has all of a sudden plopped itself down in the Big Ten. It kind of has changed a little bit of, of what the Big Ten can be as a conference. Like I think there are teams in the Big 12 that could end up in other conferences that can have that type of effect. So we'll have to see on that, but that's a fascinating part that, that will play out in the coming weeks and months and, and years. Yeah, it's uh, there's definitely a lot to to unpack there uh, going forward, and and we'll as as things actually you know, start to get decided, and that will uh, we'll get into to things like well, what happens to the Big Twelve now? Uh, this, none of this is going anywhere anytime soon. But uh, before we move on uh, from this, the SEC now, you're adding Texas. Um, you know, we know that Texas, you know, we, we just talked about Texas is the number one team in ahead of 2022, at least as we sit here today, six months out from the season or however many months out it is. And, you know, so there are pre, you know, it's maybe the best program in the country, you know, or, or theoretically, you know, the, the biggest program in the country, I should say, uh, or, or certainly in the top five somewhere. Uh, so you're adding that Oklahoma is not that, um, you know, they have national championships, but they just haven't been that in recent times, their facilities in the sec are going to immediately go into the bottom, I don't know, quarter of the league. And, you know, I know that there are plans to, to improve on that, but until they actually show up, you know, that's, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to have it. Um, that, that that's going to be really interesting to to view Oklahoma as they move into into this. I mean, I I am going to love to see uh, Texas competing in however they determine whether they're dividing into divisions or you know two divisions, four divisions, pods, you know whatever it'll be. Uh, but but to see Texas against LSU or Arkansas uh, or the Mississippi schools in on, on a regular basis is, is going to be great. Uh, Joe, though, you, you've dug into Oklahoma pretty deeply over the last couple of years, I feel like. I mean, what, what's your sense in, in Oklahoma's SEC future on the diamond? I, I think they're going to struggle initially. Um, barring, they're still recruiting well. So, like, barring something really changing in their, out, in their, their the way they perform the next couple of years, like, I do think there is going to be a struggle because I, I don't think they're ready to compete for a number of, I mean, I mean, they aren't ready to compete in the big 12 right now. I mean, that's, I, what, that's, that, exactly, that's a little yeah. unfair because in 20, they were so good, but 
you know, the last two fully completed seasons, they weren't really ready to compete in the Big 12. Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot about, like, what could have been with Arizona State and Miami in 2020. Like, Oklahoma's low-key, one of those schools that, like, looks at 2020 and probably looks at, like, that was really our that was really our shot. Um, and as it is, I mean, this program hadn't been in the postseason since 2018 now. Um, again, not quite fair because you've got a canceled season in there. Um, but, I mean, that's, that's you know, they're, they're going to be going on four years by the time next season starts. And so um, it's, not a, it's not a program that's really – to your point, not all that competitive in the Big 12 right now. When you talk about, they're competitive. They're just not competitive with the best teams in that conference from year to year. Um, but all the reasons you talk about, I mean, the facilities are going to be behind. They'll be ahead of uh, Tennessee until that gets resolved, I presume, and be ahead of Mizzou, um, maybe. But I, I, you know, I've never been to Eldale Mitchell, so I, I guess I can't really even speak that confidently on that. But that's kind I mean, of that's probably the list, though, Missouri and Tennessee. Yeah, yeah, almost certainly, considering how many places out there have already had palaces or have built them in recent years. So uh, they're going to be behind in that. Um, you know, they don't have a lot of recent history that they can point to as being a national title contender. Um, you know, so they don't really even have that to point to. They're not in a particularly advantageous geographic area. A lot of the limitations they've had in the Big 12 recruiting are exist and are amplified in the SEC. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of friction for them. Like, I don't think they struggle to the extent that Mizzou obviously has struggled kind of coming into the SEC where Mizzou has just had a lot of trouble putting a, even a, even a middle of the pack type SEC team on the field. I don't think it's to that degree um, because we can see that Oklahoma can still recruit some elite level recruits. They've continued to kind of do that. Um, but, but I do think it's going to be a, be a struggle out of the gate. And I, I think they're going to have to have a real realistic look at where they are as a baseball program. And, and maybe, you know, we don't know exactly how long it's going to be. The official word right now is 2025. I'm here to tell you, listener, it will not be that long for <laughs> Texas and Oklahoma to get into the Big 12. They are not going to hang on to this arrangement uh, for four years to go from Big 12 to SEC. Um, so maybe there is enough time, though, if that, if that ends up being two years instead of four, like maybe between now and then they can make some facility announcements or invest in some other way. Like there are ways they can try to bridge that gap a little bit, but I think your hunch is right. I think it's a team that initially in the SEC, I think is, is going to meet, meet a lot of friction and struggle to be competitive at the top of the conference. Yeah, that's uh, I I'm also fascinated how they're going to divide this. Um, there's a lot of talk in terms of football about going into to 14 pods Um in which you know you play everyone in your own pod annually, and then you they make it work so that you play other teams more often than the divisions would presently allow for, or whether there'll be two eight-team divisions for baseball. Um, we can do a lot of different things. They could do away with divisions, I suppose. Um, the SEC tends to like their divisions, though. I feel like uh, more than some other conferences. So I, just how they're going to orient a schedule uh, is, is very interesting. I would kind of like to see them actually go to like 33 conference games. I cannot imagine that happens, but like that would uh, playing 11 weekends instead of 10 would, would really help you play more. Of the, obviously, it would help you play more teams in the, in the league, but that would, really, that would really help from a scheduling perspective, I feel like. I doubt that there's going to be a whole lot of uh, excitement about, you know, three extra SEC caliber games. Uh, but, you know, that, that would, that kind of be my pipe dream. Um, 
you know, so there, there's a lot to, to sort through here. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll try and keep up with all of it. It's, uh, it's going to be fast moving though. Cause there is, th- th- this does have the potential to really be a, a sea change and the start of another significant, uh, conference realignment movement. All right, that's going to do it for us today here on the Baseball America College podcast. Covered a lot of ground, uh, especially for late July, I feel like. We will be back here next week with another edition of the Baseball America College podcast. Definitely going to talk about the fallout of the draft signing deadline and whatever else comes up between now and then. But I, I, I am sure that we're going to be talking about that next week. So if you're not subscribed to the Baseball America podcast, you can do so on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find the Baseball America podcast. And we appreciate everyone uh, for subscribing and sticking with us through the offseason. We are going to continue to come at, at you weekly here probably early in the week like this and we will be uh getting back to our our guest format here very shortly possibly as soon as next week and uh so if there is someone that you are interested in hearing from in the college baseball world please let us know you can drop us a line i'm at ted cahill on twitter joe is at joe healy ba or leave a review over on Apple Podcasts, ideally with five stars as well. That would, that would definitely move your interview choice to, to the front of the line uh, if, uh, if you drop a five-star review with, uh, with somebody that you would, like us, you would like to hear from here on the Baseball America College Podcast. So thank you all for listening. Thank you to Rap Soto for sponsoring uh, or for presenting, excuse me, this edition of the Baseball America College Podcast and every edition. And remember, if you go to repsoto.com slash summersteel and use the code BASteel, all one word, uh, you can save $500 off, off all unit purchases here until the end of July. Uh, so make sure to take advantage of that if you are interested. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll be back here next week with another edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.